Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This week's episode is a listener suggestion. Thank you to April for bringing Kyron's story to my attention. It is listeners like you that keep the podcast going. I am forever appreciative for everyone's support and kind words, and I'm really trying to prioritise your suggestions. Every episode for the rest of the year will be listener suggestions. This is my way to say thank you. June 2010, Portland, Oregon. One afternoon at the end of the school year, Kane and Terry Horman eagerly waited at the bus stop for their son. They were prepared to be bombarded with stories from that day's science fair and talent show. Unfortunately, their joy would soon turn to worry when Kyron didn't get off the school bus. And then their worry turned to horror when they discovered he actually hadn't been to school at all that day. His stepmother dropped him off at the school herself earlier that morning. She saw him walking towards his classroom. The police investigation already lost so much valuable search hours as Kyron had not been seen for seven hours by this point. Parents in the community demanded answers as to how a seven-year-old could just vanish from school without anyone noticing. And quickly, all suspicion was directed on just one person, Kyron's stepmum. This is Kyron's story. June 4, 2010, seven-year-old Kyron Horman left for school with his stepmom, Terry Horman, excited to show off his second-grade science project on tree frogs at Skyline School in northwest Portland. They went to school in his dad's truck that day. Terry didn't normally drive the truck, but she said she'd need it to bring Kyron's science project home. Terry snapped a picture of Kyron with the project, posting it on Facebook that afternoon. But when it was time to pick Kyron up from the bus, he wasn't there. Kyron Richard Horman was born September 9th, 2002 at St. Vincent's Hospital in Portland, Oregon, to parents Desiree and Kane Horman. While Desiree and Kane were married for a time, they divorced when Desiree was eight months pregnant with Kyron. But all were amicable, and when Desiree had majority custody of Kyron for the first two years of his life, Kane got to see him whenever and as much as he could. In 2004, Desiree was diagnosed with kidney failure due to an adverse reaction to a non-FDA-approved medication she had been taking. Like any parent, you do what you can to be around for your children as much as possible, and there was a promising opportunity for intense treatment. But to do that, she would have to move to Canada. Desiree and Kane came to the decision that due to her ill health, Kyron would go live with his father. Desiree still being an active parent though, and she would spend as much time with her son as she could. Now while going through the divorce, Kane met 37-year-old substitute teacher and former bodybuilder Terry Moulton. The two started dating and married in 2007 in Hawaii, wearing their bathing suits. Terry already had a teenage son, James, from her first marriage. The couple quickly adding to their family with the birth of their daughter, Kiara, in December of 2008. Sadly, like so many, Terry suffered from postpartum depression after the birth of Kiara. It is thought that around this time, Kane and Terry's marriage began to break down. 
It has been said that while their marriage and family seemed perfect from the outside, things weren't as much in reality. According to Terry and her best friend, Dee Dee Spitcher, Kane would be very controlling over the family's finances. She would have to account for every dollar she spent, and if Kane didn't agree, they would fight about it. Even if it were for essential items for the children and household, that Kane would criticise Terry for not losing all her baby weight, something that deeply upset the former bodybuilder, whose outward appearance was a big factor from when she was competing. And when Kane went away for work, he would give her an unrealistic list of household chores he expected to be done for when he returned, including tending to their five-acre property, all while looking after three young children, one still being a baby. On Mother's Day 2010, Terry hired a landscaper with her own money so Kane wouldn't know, later telling Kane it was actually her son James who did the yard work. According to Dee Dee, there were other times Terry would hire a house cleaner, again out of her own money because she just wasn't coping. Regardless, it does seem that Terry and Kyron were close. She had been in his life since he was only a toddler, and from all accounts, she loved Kyron like he was her own son. The family travelled often, building lifelong memories, and Terry volunteered at Kyron's school. Terry also posted a lot on social media, sharing photos of her eldest son, James, of Kyron and then Kiara. It was very clear that Terry would attend all the extracurricular activities for the boys. And it does appear that whatever was going on at home or with his mother, it didn't really affect Kyron. He was a happy, polite and well-adjusted little boy. Although Desiree would tell a different story. According to civil court documents, Desiree claimed in the months leading up to Kyron's disappearance, quote, Kyron became increasingly unhappy about not spending time with me. Several times he would just break down and sob because he wanted to stay. Unquote. Desiree also claimed that Kyron had regressed back into bedwetting. But according to Kane, he said the same thing about Kyron when he had to go to his mother's, and that Kyron had always had problems with bedwetting at night time, so this wasn't anything new. At this time, Desiree's health had improved dramatically, and it seemed she would make a full recovery. She returned to work and moved to Metford, Oregon, which is about a four-hour drive from Portland, and she remarried to a detective named Tony Young, a man Kyron definitely admired, telling anyone who would listen he wanted to be a policeman when he grew up. I really think that influenced the CSI t-shirt he was wearing the day he disappeared. Kyron would go and visit his mother and new stepfather every other weekend. In June 2010, when our story takes place, Kyron was almost finished the second grade at Skyline Elementary, and he was doing really well. Kyron was very intelligent and creative. He was in advanced placement math and had decided on his own volition he wanted to learn sign language something he was picking up with ease. I did read in the True Crime Society blog, and shout out to those amazing girls, but I did read in their blog that Kyron did bore easily in class, and he would space out when teachers were talking to him. More importantly, he would walk out of class to use the bathroom without asking. I think this is an important point to really put a pin in, and refer back to what ultimately happens in this story. Kyron did have a history of wandering off in class. It wasn't out of character. This case makes me nervous. 
if you are a member of the amazing Facebook group. I did post about this case, that I have an unpopular opinion about what happened here, or more so, what I don't think happened here. But we will get to that later in the story, even though I think you know where I'm headed here. June 4th, 2010, started out a pretty normal day in the Horman household. Well, actually, that isn't entirely true. That day was a science fair at Skyline Elementary, and Terry was going to drive Kyron to school that morning instead of him taking the school bus as normal. That day was going to be an exciting one for the children of Skyline Elementary. There was a science fair and talent show, and Kyron was taking part in both. Terry actually was the one who helped Kyron with his science project on red-eyed tree frogs. Kyron had wanted his mother Desiree to be the one to take him that morning, but she had work commitments and couldn't pick him up until the following day, when there were plans for Kyron to spend the weekend with her and her husband in Metford. But Terry drove Kyron because she was hoping to bring home the project, but when she got there, she was told the science fair was going to be the entire day and she couldn't. That morning before he left for work, Kane promised his son ice cream that afternoon. This would be the last time he would see his son. 8am. Terry would drive Kyron to school with baby Kiara in tow, in Kane's white Ford F-250 truck. Numerous people would see Terry help her stepson set up his project in the hall, and then they walked around together taking in the other science projects. Before she left, Terry would take the infamous photo of Kyron, standing next to his science project. In the photo, Kyron can be seen so proud and smiling, showing off his work. The school bell would ring at 8.45, and this is when Terry would leave. According to Terry, she raced him up the stairs to his homeroom, something they had done a million times before. But that day, instead of lugging the baby to his classroom, she stopped at the top of the stairs. She called out to Kyron to tell him she loved him and she would see him that afternoon. He turned and waved happily to her. That would be the last time Terry would claim she saw seven-year-old Kyron. After leaving the school, Terry didn't go back home. She had a number of errands to run that day. She first stopped at the Fred Myers grocery store, which is about seven miles away from the school. Kiara had an ear infection and she needed to pick up some medication for her. But this Fred Myers didn't have the medication she needed. Regardless, Terry bought some other items and she would later supply the police with a receipt for these purchases with a time showing 9.12am. Terry drove to another Fred Myers where she bought her daughter's medication and surveillance footage did support this visit too. After this, Terry kind of just drove around. She drove around the rural roads of northwest Multnomah County for 90 minutes in this time, Terry made a phone call. Who she called and what they discussed has never been confirmed. The next confirmed movements of Terry was 11.40am. Terry would check into the 24-hour fitness gym, placing Kiara in the gym's crèche. And she would have an hour workout before catching up with some gym friends, showing them photos from the science fair earlier that day. Terry would then drive home and place Kiara down for a nap before uploading some photos on Facebook, including the infamous Chiron Science Fair photo in a folder marked June 2010, and this was at 1.20pm. 
She would also email Kyron's teacher asking when she could pick up the science fair project. It would be around this time Kane, who worked as an engineer, Kane would return home from work early this day so he could be there to pick up Kyron for the promised ice cream trip. Kane arrived home for a late lunch at 2pm and then at 3.30 he, Terry and baby Kiara walked to meet Kyron at the bus stop eager to hear about the rest of his day, just like they did every day. But on this day, Kyron didn't get off the school bus. Kane spoke to the bus driver, who told him that Kyron never got on the bus after school ended. Kane and Terry had a quick discussion, and it was decided that Kyron might have just gotten confused, maybe because his routine was already put off with Terry dropping him at school that morning, that maybe he thought she was also picking him up from school. So Kane called the school expecting to hear that Kyron was still there waiting for them. He spoke to the school secretary, Susan Hall, and what she told Kane chilled him to his core. Susan told Kane that Kyron hadn't been at school at all that day, that he'd been marked absent at his first class at 10 that morning. And we went through this with Bung's story way back in episode 13 of the podcast. Usually when a child is marked absent from school, the children's parents are notified immediately. I know with my youngest school, I get a text message. High schools are a bit iffy. My daughter's high school, I also get a text message. But my eldest school, I have to actually physically go into an app myself to see if he signed into school that day. Believe me, I have given that school feedback. To me, that isn't good enough. I couldn't imagine the frustration of the parents in both of Bung's and Kyron's cases. And for the investigators going forward too. We know that time is of the essence when we're talking about missing children, and by the time Kane and Terry knew Kyron was missing, almost six hours were lost. Now, the reason the school would later argue Kane and Terry weren't notified of Kyron's absence, Kyron's teacher would have a conversation with Terry at the science fair, and Terry mentioned that Kyron had a doctor's appointment the following Friday, the last day of school. But either there was a miscommunication or misunderstanding, either deliberately or accidentally, but we will get to that later. But Kyron's teacher took it that Kyron's doctor's appointment was that day. So when Kyron wasn't in class, it was simply assumed he had left with Terry to attend this doctor's appointment. Kane and Terry got into Kane's car and they raced to the school, desperate for Kyron to be somehow there waiting. Both Terry and the school secretary called 911 at around 3.45pm. The school secretary would also call Desiree to tell her her son was missing. The police meeting everyone at the school to start the search by 4pm, more than seven hours after Terry last saw the seven-year-old. That evening, a widespread search around Skyline Elementary was coordinated. Every inch of that school was searched. All the crawl spaces, storage areas, classrooms, outbuildings, anywhere a little boy could be hiding, as well as bushland in the two-mile radius of the school. The Horman family home was also searched. In all, 65 detectives, 60 trained searchers and countless volunteers took part in the search for Chiron. At 5.30pm, a rapid broadcast message to all parents of Portland public school students was sent out alerting them that a student named Kyron Horman didn't return home from school. Over that first weekend, the search was expanded. The FBI was alerted and the National Guard became involved. 
The Multnomah County Sheriff's Office held several press conferences asking witnesses to come forward. Unfortunately, Skyline Elementary didn't have CCTV at the time, so all the police had were witness statements. Everyone wanted to find this adorable little boy. The majority of parents and students of Skyline Elementary came forward voluntarily that weekend. More than 200 people in total showed up to be interviewed. The local news media were also on hand to do what they could to help, spreading the news of the disappearance, showing the photo Terry took of Kyron that morning. His smiling face, so proud of his science project. His brown hair neatly styled, and his blue eyes shining behind his metal-framed prescription eyeglasses. And what he was wearing. A black t-shirt with CSI in green letters and a handprint image on the front. Black cargo pants. White Hanes socks and black Skechers sneakers with orange trim. But no new information was learned. No one knew where Corin went after waving to his stepmother that Friday morning. Something that does bug me here and isn't widely reported. I know the police and true crime fans do believe Terry was involved here. And there is good reason for people to think this. She really doesn't do herself any favours which you will see as the episode goes along. While it seems authorities in the community were doing everything they could to find him, Kyron's entire family were radio silent. In that oh-so-important first week of the search for Kyron, Terry and Kane and Desiree, no one spoke to the media. The only reference to anything to do with a missing seven-year-old came from Terry's Facebook page, asking for friends to help pass out flyers. The family's silence was that much of a concern at the time that the FBI released a statement about it. According to the FBI spokesperson, she said the family weren't talking to the media because they believed it was in the best interest of finding Kyron. The focus was on Terry because she was the last person to see the missing boy. But it must be noted, if you read early online forums about the case, the entire family were under a heavy cloud of suspicion. It wouldn't be until June 11th that all four parents would show on a united front and speak to the waiting media outlets. Hello, uh, my name is Tony Young and I'm Kyron's stepfather. Uh, the family has asked me to speak on their behalf today. I would just like to say, Kyron, we miss you, we love you, and we need you home right now. We're doing everything we can to work with law enforcement and the search and the rescue crews to make sure that you can get back to us as soon as possible. We want to say how much we appreciate the outpouring of love and support, prayer and thoughts as we wait for you. Your school friends and their families, the teachers, the staff at your school, and the community as a whole have shown how much impact one little boy's smile can have on a community. You mean everything to us, and until you come home, this family is not complete. Please, Kyron, keep up the hope. We believe in you, and we know you will be back with us soon. I'd like to now introduce Kyron's father, Kane Horman. Hi, I'm Kane. I'm Kyron's father. We want to thank the community, the parents, the children, bus drivers, and all of those who are being interviewed multiple times to help find Kyron. Thank you. We as the family know how difficult and stressful this is, but your memories and statements can help us find Kyron. 
We will never be able to thank you enough for that help. Finally, we would like to thank the media. If it was not for you showing Chiron on every newscast, printing his story in the papers, his face would not be known to everyone. People from around the nation have seen his picture. This helps tremendously. Please help us bring Chiron home. Terry and Kane, Desiree and Tony all stood together wearing T-shirts printed with Chiron's missing person poster. Chiron's stepdad, Tony, spoke directly to Chiron, that they loved him and missed him and they needed him home. Kane thanked everyone for helping to look for Chiron, but still Desiree and Terry remained silent. Now, this on its own. I know people at the time still saw this as suspicious, but we do see this in other cases. One person in the family is a spokesperson because talking about a missing or murdered loved one, it may be too much for others. I'd like to think I would be talking to anyone who would listen if I was in that situation, but who can say with any certainty? It's just as likely the pain and grief and guilt is too much to bear and you can't bring yourself to talk about it because if you do, it becomes more real. Also on June 11th, 2010, Search efforts were expended to include Savi Island, which was about six miles away from Chiron's school. This seemed quite strange at the time because it would have been unlikely Chiron would have made it that far by himself. And while he had been there before previously with his family, it didn't make sense why he would head there if he was going off on a little adventure. It would be revealed later that Terry's cell phone did ping off a cell phone tower on the island on the day Chiron went missing. This really doesn't mean all that much, though. Cell phone signal will just bounce around until it finds the closest available tower. Doesn't necessarily mean you are actually at that location. Also, the island bridge has a surveillance camera, which shows all vehicles accessing and leaving the island. And the truck Terry was driving was not captured on the surveillance video on that day. Regardless, the island was searched extensively with searches on horseback, helicopters and divers. Maybe there was another reason that made them think Chiron may have been there. Maybe there is more information the police haven't revealed to make them spend all those man hours and all that effort searching the island. Despite authorities' best efforts, though, there was no sign of Chiron. And when I say best efforts, authorities really came out to find this little boy. To this day, the search for Chiron Horman was the largest and most expensive search effort in Oregon history. I read in one article about the search that police had to ask people to stop donating food and water for volunteers because they had so much. More than 1,500 volunteers turned up to grid search the school area, not just once but for that week period, every time without fail. The search is costing the state of Oregon more than $1 million. Sunday, June 13, 2010. Police announced the ground search had been suspended, and this was no longer a missing persons case but a criminal investigation. They believed Chiron did not run away or wander off out of school for an adventure. To encourage tips to move forward the investigation, police announced a $25,000 reward for any information leading to Chiron's whereabouts. This reward was quickly doubled to $50,000 by the end of July. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there was a growing suspicion by the police and the community that Terry was responsible for Chiron's disappearance. 
or at very least knew more than she was letting on. And as I said, she really wasn't doing herself any favours in her actions. I mean, if someone could have a massive flashing neon sign over their head saying, hey police, look at me, it really was Terry. In the days after Kyron's disappearance, instead of being at these ground searches, instead of talking to the media, begging who took Kyron to return him, Terry was texting her friends, talking about the reasons why she made this doctor's appointment. Quote, The past two weeks he's been acting really weird, staring off into space, can't remember anything, walks into the room and then back out, stopping to stare and then move on. The doc thinks he's having mini seizures, and I made an appointment on Thursday for next Friday to have him checked out. Unquote. Terry would tell other friends she last saw Kyron with a few other children and a male chaperone, but then it was revealed there was no male chaperone on the list at the school that day. To investigators, it seemed as if Terry was trying to find reasons of what happened to Kyron. Oh, he's acting weird. Maybe he walked out of school and then had a seizure, possibly causing him to hurt himself or maybe not remember who he was. Or maybe it was this elusive unknown male chaperone. Maybe he was the one who took Kyron. Between June 4th and June 25th, Terry agreed to take three polygraph tests, one she walked out on after she became frustrated by the questioning. The other two tests Terry did not pass. Whether that was fouled with deception or inconclusive, I really couldn't find any official police statement either way. Just Desiree and Kane stating themselves that they passed and Terry didn't. Look, my faith in polygraphs are not strong and honestly, if I was in a situation where I was asked to sit for one, I doubt I would. Their accuracy is dubious at best and they aren't admissible in court anyway. Just as I always say in every episode I do involving polygraphs. And Terry has said she wasn't able to hear the questions properly during the test as she is deaf in one ear. She was insistent that she was telling the truth. And again, as I say in every episode involving polygraphs, polygraphs are heavily influenced by your body's reactions, and they may give incorrect answers based on stress, anxiety, medications. Some people can even cheat polygraphs, people who can control their heart rate. And it is possible that Terry was concerned and worried about Chiron, and the reaction these emotions caused didn't match that of what the polygraph machine said she was saying. However, in saying that, three polygraph tests, even me, who was very sceptical here, I even admit that is very suspicious. And for the third evidence of guilt that is discussed when the finger is pointed at Terry Horman as abducting and disposing of Chiron, the murder for hire plot. As the story goes... During their investigation, police asked Terry if she knew anyone who may be suspicious in her opinion and had been to their home recently. She mentioned the landscaper she had hired on Mother's Day weekend, so only a month earlier. But she couldn't tell Kane because he didn't know she was going to hire a landscaper and he would never approve. So, the police brought him in for questioning. June 10, 2010. Investigators told Kane that his wife had offered their landscaper, Rodolfo Sanchez, a lot of money to get rid of him. And Sanchez told police this under oath in a deposition that he and Terry had a meeting at a restaurant where she told him she wanted him to kill her husband. Because he was having an affair. Because he was mentally and physically abusive. 
and he had threatened to take their daughter away. This meeting happened allegedly around six months before Kyron disappeared. He also alleged that he and Terry were having an affair. This is despite him speaking very little English and she didn't speak any Spanish. But she allegedly told Sanchez that Cain carried $10,000 on him at all times and he could make it look like a mugging. Now why anyone with a young child would choose to have this conversation over broken language in a public arena like a restaurant, especially with someone you apparently are having an affair with and anyone you know could see you, it sounds very fishy to me. Also, given the fact Sanchez waited six months to go to the police about being asked to murder someone, it makes this story very questionable. And because it is a questionable story, police didn't get the evidence they needed to arrest Terry. But it was enough for them to let Kane know about the supposed plot to kill him. While police were telling Kane his wife tried to have him killed, Sanchez was mic'd up by investigators and sent to the Horman family home with an undercover cop who was pretending to be a hitman. Sanchez and this undercover cop were demanding money from Terry for the fouled hit. Whatever was said was enough for Terry to call the police, which, I mean, if Terry had hired Sanchez to kill Kane, it really doesn't make all that much sense for her to call the police, but believe what you will. Regardless if this did or did not happen, Kane decided he didn't want to be with Terry anymore. He moved out of the family home on June 26, taking Kiara with him. Allegedly, that same day at 5.17pm and 11.37pm, Terry made threatening phone calls to Kane regarding the custody of Kiara. What was said or not said has never been released, but it was enough for Kane to be granted a restraining order against his estranged wife and future ex-wife. Kane calling Terry emotionally disturbed in court documents and that she was the prime suspect in his son's disappearance. Terry would be only allowed bi-monthly supervised visits. Now it seems as soon as Kane moved out, Terry had a new boo, Michael Cook, who was actually Kane's friend since high school. They were sexting and sending lewd photos to each other and it escalated from there. July 16, 2010, Terry moved out of the family home and in with her parents, essentially allowing Kane and Kiara to move back in. And here is where we get to the DD of it all. After moving out of the family home, but before moving in with her parents, Terry lived with her best friend, DD Spitcher, for 11 days. And when looking who else could be involved with Kyron's disappearance, or maybe helped Terry in disappearing her stepson, DD came to the investigators' attention. They searched her home, questioned her and asked her to sit a polygraph, which she passed. And they wanted to know where she was on the day in question. DD worked as a gardener, and she told police that on June 4 she was working at a property all day. But then when police questioned the homeowner and DD's co-workers, They claimed she mysteriously left without a word at 11.30am and then returned an hour and a half later at 1pm. That is a fair amount of time where Dee's movements could not be accounted for. After this, Dee kind of just stopped cooperating with police. Her reasoning for this was she had said everything she needed to say and she had allowed police to search her home. Dee would later go on to support her friend in an interview with People magazine. Quote, In all these years as her friend, 
I have not seen anything that would lead me to believe that she is capable or motivated in any way to do something like this. There's this horror that my friend is going through. If I thought for a second that she was capable of foul play, I would not have been there. She would not have been my friend in the first place. Unquote. But as time went on, the more and more police believed it was Terry who had done something to her stepson. August 11, 2010, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office held a press conference regarding the truck Terry was driving the day Kyron went missing, which was actually Kane's truck, a white F-250 pickup truck. Two witnesses had come forward to state they had seen a person sitting in the truck while she was in the school with Kyron. And these witnesses do believe this person was Dee Dee. But then investigators would receive further information. And what this information is, it has never been revealed. But whatever it was, it pretty much ruled Dee Dee out as being in that truck on that day at that time. And despite all the suspicion on Terry and the public really wanting her to be charged with Kyron's disappearance, still to this day, police never had enough evidence and she has never been officially named as a person of interest in the missing person case. Um, I would like to read something. Well, say something. Um, I have something to say to Terry. I want to let you all know that law enforcement is not aware of what I'm about to say. They did not help me format or review this statement in any way. Terry, I feel like you are at a crossroads in your life. Our lives present moments like these, and we aren't always going to like what life gives us. We don't have much choice in that, but what we do have a choice in is what we do with these moments. I don't doubt that the situation makes you feel like you don't have a choice, but you do, and you always have. What you are going to be remembered for is what you do with these choices and how you handle it. How do you want to be remembered? This is not going to get any easier for you. The police will not stop until they find Kyron. You will go to jail and who have, whoever has been helping you will either have to talk or they will go to jail. I believe that you really want to make the right choice and bring Kyron home. Thank you. June 2012, Kyron's mother Desiree filed in civil court, suing Terry Horman for $10 million in damages, claiming she was responsible for her son's disappearance. As part of the civil lawsuit, Desiree was asking the judge to order Terry to either return Kyron or lead authorities to his remains. Terry tried to file a motion to delay the lawsuit as it was seeking information that could lead to a criminal investigation, but the judge ruled there was no reason to delay. October 2012. Dee Dee was again questioned, but she pled the fifth to more than 100 questions relating to Chiron. She even went as far as to refuse to acknowledge she knew the family or had ever met Chiron. She was shown photos of the little boy and she said she didn't know who he was. And she refused to reveal her alibi on the day in question. But it didn't matter to police. As far as they were concerned, they were closing in on Terry and what really happened on that day. 
and Desiree believed this to be the case as well, which is why after a year of fighting in civil court, she withdrew her complaint against Terry. All of your sins are going to come back, and here we are in this situation. And that brings us to Dr. Phil. I swear, this is the second time I have talked about this man in recent months, and it's two times too many. If someone reminds me, I will link this Dr. Phil episode in the Facebook group, something I forgot to do for baby Kate. If anyone is interested in that Dr. Phil episode too, either post in the group or DM me. 2016. Desiree and Kane went on the Dr. Phil show, which, as it goes, it is extremely biased against Terry, who also appeared on the episode. Dr. Phil brought up the affair with Kane's high school friend just after he moved out. And Terry said this was only to get back at Kane for his affairs throughout their relationship, that she wanted him to feel how she had felt. Dr. Phil also brought up the fact that Terry was out there living her best life, days after Kyron went missing, going to the gym and shopping. That this was strange behaviour for someone with a missing child. But then Terry refuted this and said that Kane was doing the same thing and he wasn't getting flack about it. Terry also pointed out that only weeks after Kyron went missing, on August 7, 2010, Desiree and Tony had an elaborate vow renewal ceremony. But again, no one had questioned them for doing this. That Desiree hated Terry so much that she would do whatever it took to make her seem guilty even if she wasn't. Now armchair sleuths tend to agree with Desiree, and they point directly to Terry as being responsible and for good reason. She certainly looks guilty with her actions. And she was the last person to be confirmed to be seen with Chiron and she was the last person to say she saw him walking towards his classroom. According to some of Terry's friends, she'd been apparently upset with Kane for a while before Kyron went missing. In February 2010, Kane had made Terry's oldest child, James, move out of the home and in with her parents. Apparently, Kane and James didn't get along, and they would argue all the time. But in a way, Kane wanting James to move out was also to protect Terry, because she was struggling with her mental health, and James being difficult was also causing more stress on her. Add on to that, texting friends to distract the attention away from her after Kyron went missing, allegedly trying to hire a landscaper to kill Kane six months earlier, and then there is the DD of it all. Honestly, is there really anything here? Maybe James moving out. In my mind, it isn't enough to murder a child over, Especially a child Terry, by all accounts, really was bonded to and she loved him. But is the postpartum depression more of a factor here? Add on to that, Kane and Terry's marriage was not in a good place, plus the stresses of a new baby. Could Terry have had a mental break? And Corin was, unfortunately, collateral damage. However, look, maybe she wanted to hurt Kane, But I would think this would have been more of an affair type of hurt, not killing an innocent child. The fact that Kyron wasn't seen when Terry left isn't strange to me. There would have been so many extra people about, and that could really go in either favour. Terry and Kyron walking out of school together would not have attracted any attention because Terry was often at the school and with Kyron, and that wouldn't have stood out in anyone's minds enough to remember or take notice. Same with Terry leaving the school alone or Kyron walking out alone. 
there would have been so much going on that these non-events wouldn't have anyone thinking, huh. Look, I'm really undecided on Terry's guilt. I don't think she's a person of great moral character, but I also don't think this makes her a murderer. And I know this is a very controversial stance. But it does seem that everyone believes Terry is guilty and I just don't see it. Where is the evidence? Where is the proof? It is all circumstantial and that is being generous. Look, there is every possible reason that maybe Terry did have something to do with this adorable child's disappearance. But then again, there is every reason why she has nothing to do with it. And I really want this to generate discussion in the Facebook group. Because I really want to hear your opinions because maybe there was a side of things that I just missed. Interestingly, the investigators didn't want to utilise the FBI profile made for them because the person in the profile did not resemble Terry, but rather a man aged in his 40s. Was Dee Dee involved, either with or without Terry's involvement? Dee Dee initially did cooperate with questioning and the search, but after Terry moved in with her for a time, Dee Dee lawyered up and stopped assisting police with their investigation. And then allegedly she went missing for an hour and a half, which interestingly, if you subscribe to the Terry took Chiron theory, Dee Dee left work within the time frame Terry was driving around. Dee Dee left work at 11.30 and Terry surfaced at the gym 10 minutes later. Could Terry have passed Chiron off to her friend? They were best friends. The time frame is tight, but it's not impossible. Improbable, but definitely not impossible. This is pure speculation on my point. What if Chiron was abducted by someone else entirely? And the tunnel vision of investigators who were so focused on Terry, they missed it. They messed up. According to Desiree, Chiron was a very shy and timid little boy. He wasn't like Michael Vaughan that we talked about back in episode 98. Whereas Michael was super trusting of adults and would approach anyone for a chat, Chiron wouldn't. But what if it was someone at the school, someone Chiron knew and trusted? And with all the craziness and all the people at the science fair, this person was able to convince Chiron to leave with them, leave without anyone noticing. Could someone the family trusted to look after their son spent the school year grooming him and becoming friends with Chiron, waiting for their opportunity to take him away from the safety of the school? And the science fair was the perfect opportunity because everyone was distracted. One witness stated they heard a man asking Chiron's teacher if he could borrow a student to unload some things from his car, and the teacher did not see a problem with this. Let's let that sink in for a moment. I am speechless at that. Is it possible this student was Chiron and this man took the little boy? It's also been proven that two of the maintenance staff at Skyline Elementary had questionable backgrounds, one even writing inappropriate sexual poems about a teenage boy. There were also thousands of sex offenders on the registry in that area at that time, and three of these are still unaccounted for during the day Chiron went missing. Could Chiron have walked out of the school and gotten lost? Or something happened to him outside the safety of his elementary school? Which brings us to the last theory. Skyline Elementary is surrounded by dense woodlands, and those familiar with the area will tell you that it's very possible for someone to get lost there and never be found. Desiree and Kane did not consider this theory for a second. Chiron wasn't confident and didn't like to leave his safety zone. 
Maybe his poor eyesight contributed to that. But even with his prescription eyeglasses, he couldn't see great. And while Desiree said that Kyron would not wander off, the school would later confirm they lost track of him twice previously. And remember what I said earlier, he would just up and walk out without a word. One time he was found with another student on the soccer field, and the second time he went into the bathroom and stayed there for an extended period of time. Kyron wandering off and something happening is not outside the realm of possibility. I'm going to end this episode on the most frustrating part of this entire story, and that is that Kyron was not the main focus of this whole story. In my research, in the media, it seems everyone is more focused on Terry's personal life. Her friends, her affairs, her scandals. It is so sad that all of this is what people choose to focus on, and not the fact this little boy is still missing 13 years later. Terry Horman still maintains she had nothing to do with Kyron's disappearance, and she has no idea where he is. And while Desiree and Kane try to remain optimistic, they have come to terms with the fact that Kyron is most likely deceased. The search for Kyron is still ongoing, and investigators say the case is still open and active. At the time of his disappearance, Kyron Horman was seven years old. He was three foot eight and fifty pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. He wore prescription eyeglasses with metal frames. Kyron was last seen wearing a black t-shirt with CSI in green letters and a handprint image on the front. Black cargo pants, white Hanes socks and black Skechers sneakers with orange trim. If Kyron is still alive today, he would be 20 years old. Actually, he'd be gearing up to celebrate his 21st, such an important milestone, one he never had the chance to look forward to. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Kyron Horman, please contact the Montnomah County Sheriff's Office on 503-823-3333 or 503-261-2847. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook like the page so you don't miss an episode and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.